Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, well, well. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. What the hell is an Imaginarium anyway? According to Wikipedia, Imaginarium refers to a place devoted to the imagination. Uh, There are various types of Imaginaria, centers largely devoted to stimulating and cultivating the imagination towards scientific, artistic, commercial, recreational, or spiritual ends. So when I refer to the conspiracy show as the audio imaginary, and perhaps a bit of a, a misnomer, because much of what is discussed on this program is not my imagination or yours. Sadly, it's real. The Bilderberg meeting, which just wrapped up in Copenhagen, is real. Uh, we were told for years it was just our imagination. Then they finally admitted there, there are these elites and monarchs and oil barons and banksters and media moguls who do gather once a year behind closed doors and under a veil of extreme secrecy. Those strange jet plumes in the sky that persist well beyond typical contrails and then rain down aluminum oxide particulates and barium and strontium, they're not our imagination, they're real. Uh, I just happened to love the word Imaginarium, and I was I was actually inspired by uh, uh, to use it by the the film The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, uh, which I, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's about this uh, mystic Doctor Parnassus who runs a kind of a nomadic theater troupe, and they lure people through a mirror that shows them a world of their deepest subconscious desires, where their souls are put to the test. I thought, that's interesting, a mirror that shows them a world of their deepest subconscious desires. Maybe this show is a bit of a mirror that shows us our deepest subconscious desires, a world free of the Bilderbergs and their desires for a unipolar world and the creation of a new feudal age, where we're the miserable serfs in that scenario, by the way, a world without chemtrails. So Imaginarium, upon reflection, a pretty apt descriptor at that. Uh, speaking of uh, the Bilderbergs, I have a, uh, a well-thumbed copy of Jim Maher's Rule by Secrecy on my desk here. Uh, I'm actually rereading it for, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth time. And uh, this book really served in many ways as my primer, my entree into the hidden history that connects the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergs, the Masons, the Great Pyramids. And by the way, Jim Maher's, this book, uh, Rule by Secrecy, underground bestseller, and uh, most, if not all, of Jim Mars' books end up on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, but Jim Mars is coming to Toronto for the first time, June 21st and 22nd, and this is an exclusive engagement, an intimate meet-and-greet and book-signing event at Conspiracy Culture Bookstore, 1696 Queen Street West, room, uh, or sorry, from 7 to 9, that's Saturday, June 21, and then on Sunday the 22nd at the Bloor Cinema, Jim will be giving a riveting presentation entitled The Hidden History, Secrets that Connect Ancient Astronauts, the Knights Templar, World Freemasonry, the Trilateral Commission, and September 11th. Sorry, it's uh, the event starts at 1 p.m. My apologies. Okay, so Sunday, the 22nd, Bloor Cinema, 1 p.m. It ends at 3. You want to get your tickets before you miss out because they're going fast. So visit conspiracyculture.com for details on purchasing your tickets or call... 416-916-1696. 416-916-1696. Say hello to Patrick and say Richard Serrett sent you from The Conspiracy Show. 
Jim Mars, award-winning journalist. Over 30 years' experience with several Texas newspapers. In 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level uh, courses in the nation. He also investigated the U.S. Army's remote viewing program three years before it was publicly <clears throat> acknowledged by the CIA and then produced Alien Agenda. In addition, his book, Rule by Secrecy, has been termed an underground bestseller. His other books include Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, which served as the inspiration for Oliver Stone's JFK, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, Alien Agenda, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, and Our Occulted History. And Jim Mars joins us on the line from his home in the great state of Texas. Jim, how are you? Hey, howdy, Richard. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, and I'm really looking forward to meeting all my friends up in Canada. How is it that you've never been to these here parts? Well, actually, I have, uh, I, but but only as a visitor or passing through. I've flown over Canada a few times on the way to Europe, uh, but this would be the first time I've actually landed, spent more than a few hours, and actually, uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting people because I get a lot of I get a lot of emails and uh, a lot of contacts with uh, readers up in Canada and. You folks seem to be on top of things sometimes, I think, maybe a little ahead of uh, of uh, your American neighbors. <laughs> we're still grubbing around and, you know, uh, trying to tell ourselves we're in the land of the free, home of the brave. <laughs> well, uh, again, the event starts at 1 p.m., uh, so uh, two hours, and uh, a part of that time uh, you're going to be presenting this uh PowerPoint, the hidden history, without you know giving it all away. Just just get, tease us a little bit about uh, this hidden history, all these things that we don't learn about in school. That's right. Well, I won't say that I'm going to be given an overview, but I'm going to start with the Big Bang. <laughs> and then, <laughs> That's a good place to start. <laughs> and, then, and then end up with uh, you know Obama and the uh, uh, the uh, defense defense uh, uh, surveillance state and. Uh, Edward Snowden. So you're going to get a pretty good roller coaster ride, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be hitting all the high points there, um, touching on a little bit of everything. Uh, my latest book, Our Occulted History. Uh, let me quickly point out that when I use the term occulted, um, it 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 has nothing to do with Satan worship or zombies <laughs> or or vampires. Uh, things we would normally think of as the occult. It, I use it in the astronomical sense. When the moon uh, eclipses the sun, that's called an occultation. And it simply means that it hides the sun, it masks the sun. So uh, my title, Our Occulted History, is basically the, the history that's been hidden from us. And I say hidden from us because uh, we all know that things, you know, I know the attention span and memory, I think, of the average American seems to be about uh, 24 hours. You know, if it happened last week, they've already forgotten about it. If it happened a year ago, they've really forgotten about it. Right, right. Uh, so uh, I think that, uh, but I use the term advisedly. It's not just forgotten history. It's hidden history that has been suppressed, going back to the burning of the library at Alexandria, to the fact that uh, when Napoleon's troops took Egypt, they went inside the Great Pyramid and pulled out devices 
machines, equipment, stuff, and then just destroyed it all. Uh, you know, so so much of our uh, history as humankind has been erased and has been hidden away, and it's still going on. Um, I'm going to be talking about some Egyptian artifacts that were reported recovered in the Grand Canyon back at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and it was reported in local newspapers. And uh, they even quoted a guy from the Smithsonian. Uh, I've even talked to a fellow who uh, backpacked into the north end of the Grand Canyon and said he found old concrete platforms that he thought were probably used to mount the cranes that, to lift these uh, Egyptian artifacts out of the cave in the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then, But it all got turned over to the Smithsonian and then just disappeared. And today, uh, probably truthfully, I don't think anybody, hardly anybody at the Smithsonian probably truly knows about all this or where it might be. And they say, no, we don't know anything about that. And yet it was reported at the time. And th but then you have to understand that most people think of the Smithsonian Institution as, uh, you know, this great repository of human history. And, and on one level, it is. Right. But on another level, it's, it's a government agency. It's owned by the United States government. Right. It's the gate, one of the gatekeepers that controls yeah. the flow of information. Can they keep secrets? You, you're damn right they can. Uh, at the end of World War II, there was something like 25 or 30,000 people working in one way or another on the Manhattan Project, the project to develop the atomic bomb. And did anybody talk? No. They were, they were good patriotic Americans, and nobody, the public, didn't know about the atomic bomb until uh, one went off in Hiroshima. We just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landing, a huge military operation. Did that get out? No. No. How many people were involved in the D-Day operation? Hundreds of thousands, and other nations. See, a lot of people just, if you don't understand history, then you don't understand anything. Uh, D-Day landing, this is, uh, you know, of course, the high point for American and, and British and, and uh, Canadian, Australian. Uh, the, actually, there were 26 nations involved in the D-Day landings, and that's the thing we study about. And if you, you know, go through the public education system, then you pretty well figure that that was what won World War II. But let me point out that when, 20, when the full force of 26 nations landed at the weakest point of the German Atlantic Wall uh, there in Normandy after very, very careful subterfuge had taken place to try to convince the Germans that the invasion was going to be coming at Calais, the shortest distance between France and Britain across the English Channel. Um, 26 nations, everything they had hit the weakest point of the German defenses and had a terrible battle. They, they came close to not making it, you know, and, uh, and it was. It was truly a heroic and magnificent effort, but what people don't realize is that at the Battle of Normandy, we were only facing one-fourth of the German military, one-quarter. Three-quarters was on the Eastern Front right and fighting the Russians. Uh, it's an incredible story, and but of course, as as uh, has long been said, history is written by the victors. <laughs> Whoever wins gets to write the history, 
And uh, so, that, you know, that's why there is so much about true human history that we don't really know about. I think one of my favorite quotes came from Winston Churchill, uh, who once said, uh, I'm going to look good in the history books. And he said, I know this because I'm going to write them. There you go. Listen, uh, we'll take a time out and come back with the great Jim Mars, legendary investigative journalist and the author of so many wonderful books, Rule by Secrecy. That's a great place uh, to get started down the rabbit hole. If you haven't got a copy, pick it up. And don't forget to get a, a ticket to meet Jim Mars up close and in person when he comes to Toronto June 22nd. We'll uh, remind you about details on how to get tickets uh, over the course of the uh, the hour. Back with more of my conversation with Jim Mars and our hidden history here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740. The great Jim Mars is with us. Jim, one of the things as I was revisiting Rule by Secrecy, and I got to get myself a new copy because this one is pretty well uh, worn out, which is the way we should treat books. I don't like people that keep them in pristine. I write in the margins. I crack the spine. <laughs> use them up and then buy a new one. But um, I was reading the the, uh, the chapter that, that deals with Korea and uh, the Korean conflict and what is fascinating, uh, and you describe it so well, and I, I wonder if you could uh, uh, run it by us again, and that is how the Russians were actually prosecuting both sides of the war. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's true, and that uh, that really kind of blows me away, uh, because uh, you know we we always think, well, well, there's a war, you know, there's a side on one side, um, but uh, the point is, is that uh, the uh, Korean War was run out of um, the United Nations, uh, and as such. Um, the, the the office that was in charge of directing the Allied efforts uh, there in Korea was uh, headed by a Russian general, and um, the, I don't have his name right here at my. Uh, I think it was uh, Konstantin Zinchenko. There you go. Okay, uh, and uh, and then at the same time, the uh, North Koreans uh, were being armed by the Russians and were kind of fighting. Uh, surrogates for the Chinese and the Russians, and they uh, they had Russian uh, commanders, general, a Russian general, that uh, according to some reports is the one that actually gave the orders to launch the attack into uh, South Korea. So you had this odd situation of two Russian generals fighting on opposite sides. But then again, it's really not that unusual once you study world history because what you find is is that a uh, in World War One, for example, a uh, a German banker uh, came to the United States and uh, became the head of the Federal Reserve System and helped create uh, the uh, Paul Warburg came and helped create the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and uh, at the time of World War One, he was head of the Federal Reserve and, uh, as such, was in charge of the war effort the United States uh, in World War One, while at the same time his brother Max Warburg uh, was uh, uh, very powerful within the German Central Bank, 
and was also involved in German intelligence and was helping to run the war on the side of the Germans. Uh, and, of course, this, again, is nothing new. If you study the Rothschild banking dynasty, you find that uh, going back into the 1700s when uh, old man Meyer Rothschild sent his five sons out into the world, and uh, pretty soon they had become uh, one was head of the uh, Bank of England, one was head of the Central Bank in France, and one in Germany, of course, and then Austria and Italy. And they played those nations against each other for perpetual conflict, tension, and warfare, uh, you know, to uh, enrich themselves. Uh, it's really amazing. The same thing is even in our own, the war between the states here in, the, uh, in this country on this continent, what we saw was, uh, and even uh, von Bismarck, the German chancellor, is quoted as saying that this was a war that was fomented by the Rothschilds, who supported the South and at the same time supported the North. And a Rothschild agent, Dr. George Bickley, created a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And uh, they, at one time, had thousands of members, and this was very instrumental in stirring up the passions and uh, creating the war between the states. John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated President Lincoln, was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. So you have these um, people throughout history who you don't usually hear about, and you certainly aren't taught about this in your schools, and yet they are the ones who uh, create wars and conflicts and shortages and depressions and, and uh, financial market collapses and everything else. And uh, as you said earlier in the show, this is not just some conspiracy talk. These are historic facts. It's just that it's not usually presented to people. Uh, you know, Jim, you're, um, I believe you're, you just turned 70 not too long ago. And oh, God, really? <laughs> Sorry to be the one to break the news to you. Jim, you're 70. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. But, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering, uh, if you were just starting out now, in the business, you know, as a journalist, what would you do? I mean, because knowing what you know, let's let's pretend you're 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 25 now and you just graduated from J school, but you still have the knowledge uh, that you do. I mean, you, well, you can't I, you wouldn't be able to write for the mainstream uh, uh, press. What would you do? <laughs> it would be pretty difficult. Uh, I guess I was very fortunate because uh, I grew up in a free republic. Okay. And uh, I graduated from college in the mid-60s, and uh, it was in journalism all the way back to the 50s. Uh, and at that time, uh, most of the major media in this country was owned by privately by private families and, uh, and individuals. And uh, there were always problems. I know I used to get griped at my newspaper because I thought they were what I call two co uh, chamber of commerce. You know, they played things, uh, played up the positive, downplayed the negative, and kept, you know, rah-rah for the hometown. But I find out there's worse things than that. <laughs> that actually is kind of acceptable uh, when you see what's going on today and some of the outright lies and deceptions and propaganda that's going on. But back to your question, I, I was fortunate because I went through a journalism school that taught me to seek the truth and to look behind 
the official pronouncements of government and of the military and of, uh, you know, whatever, and try to go for the truth, try to find out what's really going on, and then report that to the people. Uh, here's a little word to some of you media owners out there. Uh, everybody's upset because the newspaper readership is uh, just going down the tubes. Even television news is not uh, doesn't have the viewership it used to. Uh, the uh, in fact, the major corporate mass media is now being called the media saurus. Okay, because they're old, they're decrepit, and they're about to become extinct. And and deservedly so. And deservedly so, because I guarantee you, uh, everybody I run into and everybody I know is thirsty for knowledge. They really want to know what's going on, but they want to know the truth, okay? And and this is good, because, uh, as Roosevelt said, you know, the, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And the analogy I'd use is, if you're out walking in the woods and you hear a rustling in the bushes, you get fearful because you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's an attacker or maybe a bear or whatever. So that does generate fear. Now, when some other hiker steps out, or even if it's a bear, at least you know what it is and you can deal with that. You can climb a tree or run away or whatever, and it's not nearly as fearful of the things you don't know. And so truth is the way to go. And there are those who argue, well, it's difficult to find the truth. We'll never know the truth. And, yes, the truth is very elusive, but you can at least try for it. And my message to the media owners of today, if you want to recapture your viewership and your listenership, try telling the truth, okay? <laughs> well, you know, as you point out, again, I go back to rule by secrecy, uh, because this is where it all started for me in large measure, uh, of that and um, uh, um well, a great number of books, but let's focus on Rule by Secrecy. Uh, Tragedy and Hope is the, the title I was searching for. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you point out that a conspiracy is not a theory. It's oftentimes a crime. And I've always wondered, you know, why uh, – and I've talked to reporters. I've talked to, you know, newspaper columnists, major, uh, you know, daily newspapers in the United States and Canada. I've asked them why don't they cover, you know, the, the stories that people are interested in. And they'll, they'll say, well, that's a conspiracy. And they, ha they admit it. They openly admit it, that they have an aversion uh, of, of conspiracies. They don't want to talk about them. They dismiss them. Uh, they have a bias against them. And, and uh, to me, it's just I, I get the sense they don't understand what the word means. And, and <laughs> no, they don't. Well, here, I hear, here's the thing. Let's quit calling things conspiracy. Okay, and let's just say, well, there was some collusion involved, you know, because see, they haven't, they haven't tarred the word collusion like they have conspiracy. Right. Uh, right. They did quite. If, if there was any one good thing to come out of the attacks of 9/11, it was the fact that the term conspiracy kind of got rehabilitated because there's really no argument that 9/11 was a conspiracy. The, the argument is, whose conspiracy was it? <laughs> right, right. That's right. And, and, and they, and I, I, when I say they, I, whatever, you know, if you want to call it <laughs> the, the elites or the, the media, yeah, the media owners or whatever, they want us to believe that conspiracies are only concocted by people in other lands, uh, who wear turbans or, <laughs> or, you know, who pray to another god. Those are the only people that, that, uh, that they, concoct yeah, conspiracies. The ones dealing conspiracies, and yet, in the courts of the United States and in Canada, uh, crime figures are routinely 
convicted of conspiring <laughs> to, to commit criminal acts. I've I, led, been led to conclude uh, that – uh, were, were Watergate to take place today, and I mean, we've had worse than Watergate taking place today. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I look at the uh, the, administ- the Obama uh, administration as the worst parts of Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon combined, uh, and and uh, so many scandals. But if we had a Watergate today, uh, and Woodward and Bernstein went to their their uh, their newsroom and said, you know, this is what's going on, they'd get laughed out of the uh, the newsroom. They wouldn't get anywhere. That's true. Uh, and, of course, you have to understand that Watergate was a, an assassination, okay, uh, except uh, unlike uh, John F. Kennedy, it was not a physical assassination. It was a political assassination. And uh, the beauty of it was is that they didn't have to create anything. They simply lifted the – and when I say they, Woodward and Bernstein were the means, okay, they didn't start it. Uh, the people behind Deep Throat and people who were saying, we've got to do something about Nixon, he's getting out of hand, uh, they're the ones who decided he had to go. But the country was still reeling uh, in 72 from the assassinations in the 60s, Robert Kennedy and, and uh, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy. And so they, all they did was lift the curtain and show, showed what Nixon was doing. And everybody threw a fit, and uh, he got threatened with impeachment and resigned as a result. Uh, so it was a political assassination. And what kills me is is that today I think we probably could have another Watergate, and everybody would just go ho-hum because when you get right down to it, uh, it was a, a minor burglary of the Democratic headquarters uh, with people who were operating on behalf of Nixon uh, political operatives uh, trying to get some information, find out what the Democrats might have to use uh, in the upcoming election. T- today, that's kind of like, yeah, okay, politics, so what? Uh, what we see today is uh, Bill Clinton. He gets impeached. Why? For selling our nuclear sec- secrets to China, a treasonous activity? No. <laughs> he, gets, he gets impeached for having sex with, with an intern. Give me a break. And, of course, Obama, you know, we haven't got time tonight to list all of the legitimate reasons to impeach Obama. So, you know, Watergate today would be be kind of a ho-hum. You know, who cares? In your 70 years, Jim, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I hate to keep <laughs> reminding you, but no, but in your in your life, in your storied life, have you ever experienced a moment in history like this that uh, perhaps is has you as concerned for the United States, the fate of the United States, and, and the world? No. No, it's, uh, there's always been problems. There'll always be problems. But, uh, and, and let me preface by saying this. You know, I, w- I was always taught you never want to publicly talk about religion or politics, you know, because people get upset and then they get mad at each other and blah, blah, blah. And there is some truth to that, so... I try to stay away from politics, but, you know, what we're talking about here, Richard, is not politics, okay? Politics is a normal human activity. Uh, let's say you and I, we both agree that we need to build some new highways there in Canada, okay? So, but then we argue over who, how and who's going to finance that. Now, that's politics. 
Jim, let me just jump in here. We're, we're going to take a time out. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side. Okay. Jim Mars, New York Times bestselling author, legendary investigative journalist, here on The Conspiracy Show, here in Toronto, June 22nd, Bloor Cinema, conspiracyculture.com for details. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay where you are. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Jim Mars. Now, we were talking politics or, or what, what's going on right now. We're, we're distinguishing between politics, which is a fine pursuit. Yeah. It's what we, yeah. we are Nothing political. intrinsically wrong. No. Politics. But here's the thing. Uh, when we start talking about the cover-ups of the Kennedy assassination of 9-11 of uh, the things that are going on, uh, the uh, Benghazi situation, you know, which is uh, uh, argued back and forth, and but then uh, in, involved in that are, are lies, outright lies. Now we're talking not politics, we're talking criminal behavior. And uh, I think it's not only uh, acceptable, I think it's necessary to pub- ha- publicly air uh, criminal activity. And uh, because if you don't, if you hide that away, if you say, well, that's politics, I don't get involved in that, then the criminal activity continues and gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, let me... Um... I never, I never, Richard, yes. in my life, going when I started off in journalism, uh, I never thought that I would live to see a day when in the United States of America they could arrest somebody and hold them indefinitely uh, with no writ of habeas corpus and without being charged with a crime and without the right to have legal representation. Nor did I ever think the time would come when the President of the United States could decide that uh, he doesn't like you and he thinks you might be some sort of terrorist so he can order your death and nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, pretty that shocking. And totally what's totally anathema to everything I was taught America stands for. And what's even more shocking is the lack of outrage. Yes, but then uh, that's what I'm working on now. Uh, I'm going even further than my book, uh, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, which points out that the American public today is dumbed down through an inadequate education system, uh, inadequate knowledge. Uh, it used to be when I was in school, we were not taught what to think. We were taught how to think. And today, it's simply recitation of facts and figures and uh, so that you can look good on a test. And today, the idea seems to be, well, they don't really need to know anything. They just need to feel good about themselves. And, of course, I question, well, you know, how good are you? Uh, about yourself you're going to feel when you're 50 years old and you can't read or write very well and you can't do numbers and you're, all you're doing is selling pencils on the street corner. Uh, Greg Pallast, uh, I'm a great admirer of, of uh, his investigative work. I think he's one of the few investigative reporters out there still working. I agree. And uh, he, he calls the public education system triage, uh, where, where students basically are, are being taught to stack boxes. Uh, yeah. Serfs for the new global economy. Yeah. Now, now, anyone, my wife has, has re, just retired from a lifelong as a high school teacher in public schools. She'll tell you, she's watched it all happen, and she totally understands. Now, 
I think anybody who is familiar with our education system would agree to all this. Again, where I differ is, I'm telling you, that has been, that situation has not just happened. It was created, set up, and is being pushed by a wealthy elite, globalist, as they call themselves, uh, who, that's what they want. John D. Rockefeller, who founded the National Education uh, Board, which has now evolved into the National Education uh, Association, uh, is quoted as saying, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. So they want to train people, give them just enough education where they can perform well on the assembly line or in the cubicles, but they don't want them really knowledgeable or thinking for themselves. During the, the at the height of the Cold War, going back to the fifties, I, be, uh, I believe it was during the Eisenhower administration, or maybe during Truman, Truman's administration. Was there not an agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union, the supposed Cold War enemy, to essentially merge the education systems? Well, yes, and both of them are based on the old Prussian education system, which was uh, developed in the 1800s in Prussia with the idea of turning the pupils into future soldiers, okay, so that in technically, on technical aspects, they'd be quite educated, but they were, the rest of it was just taught to be conformist and to move right along. And if you think about it, uh, the movement today in schools for example, is to have the kids wear uniforms or some sort of uh, similar clothing because we don't want the rich kids to stand out from the poor kids. And we, again, which is diversity, blah, blah, blah. And yet what they're doing is the same thing that the armies do of all the countries. The very first thing any army does when they induct a new uh, draftee is they shave off all their hair and then they put them in a, the same old baggy uniforms, and they tear down the individual. So that, and then they train you over and over and over to the point to where they, you, you say, "Okay, go over there and kill that guy." You'll just go do it. And uh, they're they're practicing the same uh, brainwashing techniques in the school systems today. Not quite as blatantly, but it's still that's the whole thing: conform, conform. Uh, and uh, I started running into this. Uh, uh, even back in college, I know I had a history professor one time, and he gave us a test, and his question was verbatim. He said, what do you think are the four major causes of World War II? Well, I wrote this whole little essay. I'm going to get the answer to that, Jim, when we come back. Okay. I can't wait to hear this one. Jim Mars, the great Jim Mars, back with more on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Jim Mars stays with us, the author of Rule by Secrecy, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, Alien Agenda, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, which of course served as the inspiration for Oliver Stone's epic JFK, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, on and on it goes. A perennial New York Times bestselling author, investigative journalist, Jim Mars. All right, Jim, so your history teacher asked you in this essay, what are the four causes of the Second World War? It plainly said, what do you think are the four causes of World War II? And having been a kind of a World War II aficionado pretty much all my life because my uh, my dad and his brothers all served in the war and came back 
three of them served in Europe and one of them served in the Pacific. And, of course, they all came back, and as a young kid, I just wanted to hear everything, you know. And, by the way, that's when I first learned that there were deals going on, okay, because one of my uncles was a forward artillery observer for Patton's Army. And uh, something came up, and I was talking about how the Russians uh, took Berlin. He told me that he personally had driven uh, his Jeep around in the outskirts of Berlin, Okay, and I said, well, I didn't know we ever got to Berlin. He said, yeah, we could have taken it. He said, but we got orders to pull back a 100 miles and then just sit there and wait for the Russians to go in and, and fight for every little square block to take the capital of Berlin. And so it's like, huh. So there's, I already knew there was deals going on. But anyway, back to my college professor. He says, what do you think of the four causes World War II, and I wrote a nice little essay, and I got back and said, F. So I went up and said, what are you talking about? And he began to say, well, blah, 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 it's this, that, and the other thing, and it became very clear to me, he had not phrased his question correctly. He didn't care what I thought the four causes of World War II was. He wanted to know what he had told me. That's right. And that's education in a nutshell. He wanted you to regurgitate the party line. Exactly. So if you can, if you puke, you can pass. Yeah. And we see, see a lot of people don't understand, particularly people who have not gone to college, and even people who go to college, they don't quite get it. But uh, this is what's causing a great deal of problem in our societies today. Let's say you got a bright young kid, and he wants to go into chemistry. And so he was in high school, he's really into it, got his little chemistry set, and he's doing all kinds of good stuff. So he gets to college, and he starts signing up for a degree in the chemistry department. You know, well, pretty quickly, he runs into this very thing I was just talking about. You go along with what the professors say, and uh, you play the game. And if you don't, one of two things happens, you know. If you, you, uh, if you play the game and go along with the conventional history conventional theories, then you do well and you prosper. You make good grades. You'll probably get a teaching fellowship, and then you get to be a, a, a teacher's aide, and then you get to be a professor, and then you keep your nose to the grindstone and keep harking the party line. You'll become a tenured professor, and you'll have a nice life, and you might even get some papers published, and you're going to do fine, okay? Now, if you, but if you balk, you say, well, wait a minute, why is it that way? How about this? Maybe we could do that. Then you're a troublemaker. And you have trouble getting all the way through there, and you may or may not even graduate. And if you do, uh, you're not invited to be a professor. You're not invited back into that whole circle. And let's say you go that way, and then so you end up getting a job with some corporation uh, in their chemistry department, okay? Well, there, again, they have certain ways of doing things, and they get upset if you want to do it some other way. Plus, you have to sign contracts that say that if you should accidentally uh, invent something, it belongs to the company. <laughs> and and also that you are told explicitly that there are some areas you're not even supposed to go into. You stick with uh, the tried and the true. And, and this is why uh, we no longer have huge technological breakthroughs like we did in the 1800s. You look at the people who actually developed some of the most earth-shaking technologies like Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison, and these guys didn't have any big degrees. Look at the Wright brothers. They had a bicycle shop, but they decided, let's figure out how to fly, and they did. They were heretics. I bet you and most of your uh, listeners 
may not know this, but the New York Times, the uh, newspaper of record mm-hmm. for the United States, refused to write about the Wright brothers for more than a year after they flew at Kitty Hawk because their science experts told them that heavier-than-air flight was impossible. Oh, my. And these guys are just, you know, flakes. And they probably wouldn't have reported on it then, except that the Europeans, particularly the French, got really interested, invited the Wright brothers over to France, and they went over there and flew. And the European media, you know, was filled with the stories about man is flying, and the state old New York Times had to follow suit. Here's something I've always wanted to ask you, Jim. Speaking of the New York Times, exposing things as you do, it's always intrigued me. How is it? I mean... I mean, you deserve to be a New York Times best-selling author because you're a, a damn fine writer. There's no question. But I'm thinking a lot of people must be asking if there is this control, this lockdown control that the elites have. How are you able to have best-selling books and get the message out there? Why didn't they? Why don't they stop you? I guess is what I'm asking. Why do they allow Jim Mars to keep writing these wonderful books and getting on the New York Times best-selling list? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing, uh, as a reporter, uh, you know, I was constantly told, hey, uh, I was, they tried to get me off of this stuff. They, you know, I know at one point I was accosted by an editor in the hallway, and he said, uh, he said, you really ought to stop writing about nuclear power. And I said, well, well why is that? He said, well, uh, bah, 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 you know too much about it. Yeah, (laughs) stop me from doing it. Too smart for your own good. He said, "Why don't you just stick to writing those really fun little uh, sidebar stories and feature stories, you know?" And because I did that too, one of my first stories that ever got big, actually got some national play, was uh, uh, the story of a woman who uh, the birds were eating her house. And come to find out that her house had been built with bricks, and the bricks had been made, and somehow or another, the like bird seed essentially had gotten mixed up in the brick, and the the birds would whole flocks would come and peck at her house, you know, and that even got picked up, of course, by the tabloids. But so, what I found was is that my editors tried to discourage me from writing about serious uh, and in-depth topics, but if I had that was again back in the free republic. If I had the sources and if I had the the truth and if I had people quoted, then there really there wasn't much they could do other than just overt censorship, and that wasn't going on back then. Okay, now as far as my books, uh, I was just extremely fortunate in that there was a uh, senior uh, vice president of Harper Collins uh, who. Uh, had read my book Crossfire, and at the and was thinking, I wish somebody who could dispassionately and in a journalistic manner examine the question of UFOs, you know. And he was just as he was thinking all this, my proposal for Alien Agenda hit his desk, and so he bought that. And uh, it got published, and it got, uh, of all my books, it, it, it did not hit the New York Times bestseller because that was a book about UFOs back in the 90s when nobody wanted to pay any attention to it. But nevertheless, it sold well, and it sold for a long time. In fact, it's still in print, and I've been told it's the top-selling nonfiction book on UFOs in the world. It's 
been translated into about a dozen languages. So at that point, <laughs> from then on, then I came back and said, how about I write a rule by secrecy? And he was really fired up and wanted to do it. And he had the clout to actually push it on through. Uh, and, of course, HarperCollins is part of News Corp. Uh, and uh, so they, at, at that point, of course, they were more interested in the bottom pro- the profit line than they were uh, being politically correct. And so that led to other books like uh, uh, Rule by Secrecy and Rise of the Fourth Reich. And by that time, now it's a situation where I think, I think they just as soon probably not publish me, but they haven't figured out how to explain to the secondary and tertiary management level why they won't publish a writer who's had four New York Times bestsellers and has sold a lot of books. Have you ever been... Uh, harassed, for example, given a hard time trying to get on a plane to fly somewhere? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of early on. That's why I've been hesitant trying to, to go out of the country. I, I'm not so concerned going out of the country, but a little concerned about trying to get back in. Uh, and uh, maybe, hopefully, it's eased off some now, but I know in the uh, early 2000s and stuff, uh, even though here I was just a little old guy, you know, with maybe one little suitcase, and uh, I, they would always grab me and pull me out for the intensive search, you know, and I just wanted to grab them and shake them and say, what's the matter with you people? You go back to the Munich massacre of 1972 and uh, come forward. You're looking for young Arab males. <laughs> You're not looking for old fat white guys, you know. Well, listen, uh, we can't wait for you to come up here, and uh, I'm especially looking forward to taking you out to dinner. Uh, what do you say the two of us grab a steak? Uh, do you like steak, Jim? I'm guessing from the great state of Texas. Hey, I'm you up must in love steak. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but, uh, let me hasten to add that, I, I, you know, growing up in Texas, steak was, you know, we had steak for breakfast and steak, hamburger for lunch and another steak at night. And uh, But I am now wised up some, and I have uh, significantly cut down on my intake of, uh, of, of beef. Uh, and uh, I'm saying that because I would advise people to, to go uh, sparingly on the meat. Well, listen, whatever you want. Uh, if you want to, I, I can't I'm imagine. I'm always up for good steak. I was guessing maybe uh, it would be steak over, say, sushi. I can't imagine uh, Jim Mars eating <laughs> hey, sushi. But... Hey, down here in Texas where I live, they don't call it sushi. They call it bait. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. All right, uh, Jim, listen, thank you for your uh, for dropping by this evening, and uh, we will see you uh, June 21st at uh, Conspiracy Culture for the book signing, and then the 22nd at the Bloor Cinema. That's going to be a good one. Can't oh, wait. yeah. I'm going to cover so much stuff. You, I guarantee you, your head will be reeling by the time you leave. Say, uh, just uh, before we let you go, just have about 30 seconds here. What are you working on these days? Kind of the same thing. Uh, I'm writing about uh, a culture of death not that works towards death, not towards life. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's pretty much our culture right now, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, rats, you've read my book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. I look forward to seeing you. Same here, likewise. All right, the great Jim Mars. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be quite an evening. So, again, conspiracyculture.com for ticket information or 416-916-1696. Say hello to Patrick and Kadena and get your tickets before they're all gone. And my website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, 
follow the truth.